Systems Cauliflower Love Bike, a three-part audio venture into possibilities of ecological thought beyond the pleasure machine of petroculture, brought to you by A&E Collective. I'm Maria Slebmier and today we're going to gather our energies around the theme of play. As an activity, orientation and method, play can sabotage the mastering thought systems that restrict us to capitalist and carbon-based modes of thinking based on ideas of instrumentality, extraction, linear time and production. Play disrupts existing concepts of value, sociality and intimacy. As we began reflecting on play, four words arrived as though from a dream. Trashy, precious, sunshine kiss. We wanted to explore how low-carbon imaginaries might find inspiration in waste, how a rechilding approach can recalibrate our sense of time and space, what kinds of activist or agitprop potential can be found in play. How play is actually more precious than we think. Many of us need to make more space for it. The idea of play is something that at once escapes, connects and gestures in excess of a moment is captured in the sense of a sunshine kiss, that energy flash of inspiration, insurgence or pleasure, which disrupts the normative rhythms of our capitalist reality through the premise of interaction and touch a point of generative turn. In his essay on the ambiguity of pleasure and play, Georges Bataille makes an intriguing distinction between a musical score and an electricity generating station. In the generating station, Bataille says, the complexity of the constituting parts has been calculated in its entirety with precise outcomes in mind. You have a bunch of wires, circuits, batteries, and you expect their formal configuration will produce X volumes of energy. Similarly, in the repetition of a musical score, it is possible to expect, Bataille says, the outcomes. They are given in advance. Yet there is a fundamental difference between the running of a generating station and the running of a musical score, play and performance. While a conductor or player very often has limited freedom of changing a score, elements of chance, indeterminacy and interpretation come in, whereas with the station, you want it to work as a complete and uniformly replicating system. Bataille's striking comparison between the generation station and the musical score suggests a way into thinking the relationship between energy, 
pleasure and play a bit more literally. This biosystem series offers a kind of score for galvanizing ecological thought through discussions of practice, process and theory. Let's play. In this podcast, we follow many tangents in pursuit of this elusive thing called play. It's by no means a definitive exposition on the topic, but an invitation to dwell in alternative modes of thinking, to listen ambiently or attentively, and to form your own emerging perspectives on the indeterminate theory and practice of low-carbon pleasure and post-capitalist desire. As the poet Ali Warren says, desire for me is a formless, ceaseless, instinctual urge. I think of desire as counter to law and institutions, and for this reason it is a beacon. In that propulsive excess, I find a wellspring of energy I can look to for sustenance and inspiration. It courses sumptuous. Let's get stuck into a sumptuous platter of musings on play and its futures. With contributions from anthropologists Dr. Dominic Boyer and Dr. Simony Howe, artist and writer Jack O'Flynn, poet Lila Matsumoto and her associated bands Food People and Cloth, artist and childcare practitioner Kate Paul and two play experts, five-year-old Isabel and three-year-old Rebecca. We'll explore intersections of play and energy, desire, aesthetics, sabotage, work, the non-instrumental, excess, mess, space, time, and dinosaurs. Some questions. Oh, Maria's <laughs> you could put your drink down here. <laughs> well, the pressure's on you as well. <laughs> Do you think animals play? Uh, um, I, I found out that a rhino, uh, I think it's rhino, rhinos are very playful. Mm. Yeah, do they, do they like charge at each other or do they just roll around? Yeah, and, and some deers just like to go show off. They, <laughs> um, they have their big antlers out and yeah, they yeah. show off. Yeah. <laughs> T-Rexes, don't they eat meat? They do. <laughs> do they play? Do they used to play? They play with their dinosaurs food. I think all creatures play in their own way. Cass. I suppose in their own way. Yeah. Mm. Do yeah. ants play? Yes, I do. Ants definitely so. play. Because they must do. Because they crawl over each other. They do. Yeah. That's true. Mm. That's very true. Do you ever play in your dreams? We get a bit deep now.
I was thinking about play as a kind of space that I enter into um, in my life and in my work. And I guess the space is sort of defined by the question, what if? Um, so like an example could be like, I don't know, what if I stick the yellow brick to the red brick? What if I move my hand over there? Or what if I follow the green butterfly across the bush or something? Mm. Um, it's a kind of like open inquiry into the world that momentarily suspends a need for like an outcome or like any like defined result. Usually I use play as a way to like um, get out of a way of thinking where I'm too constricted by something. So, you know, if I've been making things with charcoal black and lots of grays and pencil, I might like as a playful operation introduce like neon pink and yellow. Um, and it's a way of kind of like taking the edge off things and yeah we would have all of these like rules and things set up for how you could move around the landscapes we would create um but i think that like initial feeling of world building is something i really like kind of carry with me um actually and it's something i kind of have to still tune into um as i'm making like you kind of remember the, the rules a little bit or the worlds. Um, that's something I relate to a lot. We used to do, I don't know, it was kind of like intergalactic warfare. So we all had like planets and, um, but I remember they were all structured around like elements or something. And that was the specific kind of power, I suppose that we kind of bummed that idea from like Pokemon or whatever. But it is, it is kind of interesting to me, the sort of energy dynamics of this, like how so much of childhood play was like, okay, well, if you're a lightning type, then you're super effective against water or water is super effective against fire. Um, and that really formed my whole imaginaries of like mm -hmm. earth systems um, as much as um, reading like violent, like science textbooks was. Desire to make a thing, you know, <laughs> make, make a place like that you can inhabit literally and um, psychologically. But what you build is only a kind of tip of the iceberg probably of how that's going on in your own imaginary um so it might like shape like what actual kind of worlds or emotional architectures you kind of have that there is an actual physical tangible thing how do you feel about play big mess yeah and we tidy it up before we go to bed You know, I was thinking, when I started thinking about play, I guess, I don't know, I kind of looked over at the non-human companion that lives here in the house, who happens to be a dog. You mean the cockroaches? No, <laughs> those, those, I didn't, I didn't go to them, although they may have their forms of play too. Okay, okay. I thought of the little doggy, and you know, the little doggy, she has like four, what I would call possessions, and they're her toys, right? She has like, she has... A little orange one that's shaped like a bottle that has some silly like dog pun on it. She's got a little blue one that squeaks and crackles. It's like it's got bones inside it. 
anyway, she's got these toys that she that get thrown and then she plays with. Right. But then I was like, does the dog is is it play? Like we're always talking about dogs playing, but maybe it's skill building. Like they're kind of hunting in a way. But that's maybe a playful form for dogs too. I don't know. Do dogs play? Well, I I I would answer that question with a question. Okay. Which is, you know. There's our dog who's living what we imagine to be a pretty impoverished kind of medieval peasant life with like three artifacts, like a spoon, you know, uh, a pair of pants. Right. <laughs> That's it. And yet it's totally satisfied in all her needs in every other way. Right. I think it's interesting that when people talk about play from the perspective of a society that's so focused on work, the only legitimate way to understand play is that it's somehow a preparation for work. So dogs play because they have to learn how to hunt, right? Or we play because we have to learn how to type in keyboards and operate screens and, you know... um, make widgets and things like that i mean that's that's one of the the configuration of play is as a kind of um you know dialectical category to work right it it is something that prepares one for work it negates work but somehow work always triumphs at the end i suppose so i mean but does is it is it really always i mean it sounds like you're saying two things it's both preparation for work uh, so as a child, you practice play in order to ready yourself for the laboring world or your parents and your teachers kind of ready you for that. And play is supposed to be this sort of antidote to work as it's, as it's happening. So can it be both in the same? Can play be both a preparation for laboring and also an antidote or a kind of oppositional practice to laboring? I guess it can be both. Seems like two different ways of seeing it. Everyone has been a child. Uh, yeah and has like a whole set of thoughts about that and it's again it's like easy to forget that we were children sometimes and also easy to forget that we're ecological beings let's go i mean but i think what i'm also hearing is that in in a world made of work comprised of the the ethics of work and the mandates of work that in which we currently live it's pretty hard to imagine play as free from some of those constraints, like can right. play even operate outside of those those structures of of labor that are so powerfully invested. And in that sense, play sort of intersects with this concept of leisure and the idea that you know you work a certain number of hours a day, and then you have your leisure time. But I think we've seen that as the global north has gone post-industrial and things have moved towards kind of more service and creative uh, economies or industries um, that, you know, there's a, the Google campus, right, which is filled with toys. Right. So that people stay there 24-7. I mean, they say it's to help, you know, restore a kind of creative mm-hmm. ability because you can't, you can't work at the widget factory all day and expect to create the next great app. But on the other side of it, it feels like there's something about the, these toys that is really just a kind of a lure, a trap to get you back working again, right? Mm. So you're never really not, you know, available to be harvested for your creative ideas. Yeah. So there's so there's that element, and then there's the kind of I can't remember who came up with it, but the concept of like playbore, which is kind of a word meaning like play and labor mm. which is the sort of gamification of work so everything from labor. yeah <laughs> but you know everything from like work in a call center and it's sort of mm-hmm. like you must get x amount of sales to 
get this bonus or in hospitality like you must sell all these specials to get a free bottle of wine or but it's kind of enforced play you don't really get to opt out mm-hmm. um so i guess i was wondering if you had any thoughts on that kind of phenomenon and maybe how we can resist that yeah um, and again that's those examples are taking play away from the space of intrinsic motivation which isn't capturable and yeah. towards um like external motivators like yeah. wages or like survival <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in general <laughs> or you know um yeah everything is capturable or like there will be attempts to capture everything like there are like um or to extract everything like no sort of form of thought is is safe from attempts to capture it like this like um i don't know you were saying talking about um lateral thinking i was thinking about you know Sometimes people talk about rhizomatic view, um, thinking as if that's intrinsically kind of like anti-capitalist or something. Mm. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, like capitalism constantly re-territorializes itself through rhizomatic means. I mean, again, like if we believe that work and play have a deep kind of conceptual connection to each other, it's probably good to remember that, you know, when work becomes the kind of raison d'etre of life, you know, uh, European liberalism, the plantation culture of the Americas, all that stuff, work becomes how you develop yourself and you are specifically working by engaging the world's resources and improving them and then you improve yourself along the way. So that requires tactile engagement, physical engagement to happen and work and play in the early days is just waste, wasted time, waste, you know, things that are not like helping to develop those resources in a functional way. Right. Because it's intrinsically motivating, you know, yeah. or it can be. Um, it's, a, it's a way to maybe get actions to, to continue, but also to maybe um, um, set the terms for a conversation, like, um, so kind of these protests at Greenham come in. Um, I guess some of them, kind of what I mean by setting the terms is that, you, you know, like you can have like a, something can happen and you can go and have like a, a protest and everyone can shout with placards and that can be Im- important, but that's, you know, kind of like um, reactive response. Like it's, a, whereas if you go and like, I don't know, fuck up some fences with some webs yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. or like go and do weird rich witch rituals on the top of a kind of like nuclear um <laughs> like mm. an armament base. Um you are um kind of diverting the conversation in some way. Yeah. Um, which is which is powerful, I think. Yeah. Um I really like this idea of softening because I think um this ties into the idea of sort of players kind of anti-capitalist inherently in the sense that it's not for anything it's not got that like reproductive logic of how will this activity contribute to my enhancement or accumulation when people take things too seriously it, it has to do with them believing too much in the outcome or like having too much attached to the outcome but to do something kind of sincerely but with a playful attitude somehow like you aren't so attached to the outcome of what that thing will be or where it will go. You're, you're again, more present and more in the moment. It always sort of overspills what it's kind of supposed to do. 
it, it never it can't be there's always something that escapes that like intended purpose if he can get here it's free if he can say it's name right it's free if he pours open to it if he salute it if he masticated into a fine powder if he assign a sentinel to it if he say slowly slowly if he make friends with it if he get hit quickly seeds if he get sucked by it if he get assaulted by his laughter if he paid a handsome fee if he can get here it's free What is his relation to this prickly pear? Its relation to balance, its relation to soup, in relation to nobody's business, in relation to a car horn, in relation to a rat scurrying away. Yeah, it's usually like color for me has a lot to do with feelings. Um, I think like I'll often feel a blue or feel a red and kind of follow it. Um, and kind of like I'll see it in my mind as a kind of very abstract image or feeling um, and then try to like realize it in materiality mm. in some way. Um, I think color like leads you into worlds. Um, worlds within yourself my favorite color is um uh green green why do you like green because it's my favorite color and the reason the, the front the glass is green mm. yeah i think all my work has traces of my hand in one way or another um whether that's true scratching or molding. So they all kind of carry the traces of the state of play that originally creates them in some way. Mm, so kind of like a living archive, the freedom of abstraction somehow. Um, I think that can be quite playful because I think it allows you to reconfigure um, patterns of, of meaning or, or emotion, I think, especially um, because, you know, like blue might not always mean melancholy or it might have another iteration later on. <laughs> Can you have play without touch? It seems to me there's something about play that's very tactile, that's about kind of that physical contact with something. Like, a, of course, I'm thinking of something like Play-Doh, right? That kind of weird sort of clay-like stuff that's made out of I don't know what that comes in a bunch of colors that little kids get in canisters. And, and sometimes eat. If you could play anywhere in the world, where would it be? Just call it Save a Press. <laughs> I'm saving a press. Anywhere in the world. Yeah. Could be in the sea, in a park, in a forest, in the city. I play in the middle of the world. The middle of the world. Mmm, very hot. 
Because if, if you play out in the middle of the, the world, then it's only the same, um, it takes the same hours to get to a place. Yeah, so a play can be a diversion of the conversation or a way of setting terms in a way that can be um, disarming, literally. I, I, I feel like I'm sort of naturally defend myself from thinking about um, I don't know, ecological breakdown. Um, and I think that that avoidance is um, facilitated in a way by the by separated infrastructure or separated spheres um, in in general like yeah. um, and the workplace entertainment and um, I don't know um, atomization um, in family units yeah. there are there are kind of natural separations which make avoidance not natural sorry <laughs> I don't mean that naturalized, <laughs> naturalized yeah exactly yeah um, separations which make avoidance possible. It has the same root as the German word Pflege, which is care. So somewhere deep in our kind of Germanic rootedness of our language, there was a, an idea that play was a form of care. And I like that idea. It's interesting that that's what does happen in play so often, is that um, people try to people do whatever they are told is unacceptable anyway you know yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so, so that's you know maybe if <laughs> if anything that that's the kind of like um whether that's you know unacceptable emotions or um unacceptable power dynamics or all of these kinds of things and um that makes me think that you know that's an example of resistance that's already happening um so if anything, um, maybe rechilding is, is uh, kind of maybe going back to what you think or what you have been led to believe is um, uh, unacceptable emotionally or um, socially and reconsidering those things. Um, it's clear that we can internalize these ideas that and, you know how we feel might be um, impossible, unacceptable, frightening, too much, um, and that's one of the things that can make us avoid um, kind of accessing uh, accessing necessary grief. I think that's not a typical way we think of play as like a care. German being practice. the most fun language, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the most playful totally. language. Well, by you get to spit a lot in it, and that's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty fun. There's a lot of play involved there. What would an ecological thought or low carbon lifestyle based on hedonism, abundance, and excess? as opposed to deprivation, guilt, shame, and restriction feel or look like? So it's that thing of like turning a, you know, like like one of the, you know, the best playful acts you can do in in a studio or like with a poem or something is to turn it upside down. That's the thing, I feel like it's something everyone's done, you know, and it's, it's usually better, you know? Um, so it's just that idea of like, what if we just turned ourselves upside down? What would that actually look like?
I'm really interested in ways in which ecological, I guess, affect is so premised upon, you know, individualization and like guilt, shame, um, fear, anxiety, depression, grief, loss and stuff, um, and ways in which we might kind of cultivate like excesses and senses like of abundance so like being more ecological might not mean depriving yourself of things it might actually mean being in touch with things that capitalism has like deprived us of so like the you know the generosity of time and like spending time with people in a non-functional way or um yeah kind of being in spaces that that as you say spill over i love the idea of trespass and um you know what if like those infrastructural spaces such as the electricity generator or like the wind turbine what if they weren't these kind of other spaces what if we um actually found ways of making them part of sort of civic life and and you know so that they weren't kind of like either hidden or um like sort of othered somehow what if they were they were part of spaces where we gathered and we understood we'd like learn to live with um, our own sort of infrastructure in a, in a different way why does it always have to be this really like hard ass masculine aesthetic of um industry um what you know what if we kind of weird infrastructure um and in doing so found ways of um you know making it it's, it's sort of like, what if we made this stuff hyper-visible so that we could take some kind of responsibility for what mm -hmm. we were aware of? I think, personally, like, I, because I don't often see the infrastructures of things that, like, power my high-carbon lifestyle, I, I can easily forget yeah. about that and not really think about it. I don't know, I just I had an image there of, like, covering an oil rig in, like, glitter. I don't know. <laughs> How has the pandemic in particular your experience of lockdown kind of affected your relationship to play? I think in, initially actually it, it really opened up a space for me. I think there was this experience especially in like you know the first few months of lockdown that did genuinely feel like there was that idea that there was no outcome to anything we did anymore or something that kind of weirdly opened me up um, to kind of engage with people in a slightly different way. I think it, it brought my guard down a bit. I, I think, what, I think what, what really helped was that idea that we didn't really have to, we couldn't imagine the outcome anymore. Like we didn't really know where it was going, where it was going to take us. So that kind of created this liminal space. Like a lifeline almost, the things that would otherwise maybe be more peripheral, like having, um dialogues and like exchanging work for fun um and just kind of letting those proliferate was just like the highlight of the time yeah it was actually yeah like now that you say it like it was actually really meaningful in some kind of way that like it, it wouldn't have happened in the in the before world i don't think um in the way that it did so in in that sense i think it's something i'll really carry with me actually I don't want to say that like lockdowns are good for play. <laughs> it's like in the end they're not. Like, but there was a moment for sure when it was like I think we could all feel something, and it was a kind of there was an invitation into just a slightly different way of thinking.
I also think that there's something about like the impossibility of answering that question in a kind of like concrete way. Um, maybe the point is like to proliferate questions. I think. Yeah. Like, I think that's why I really like it. It's like you can't quite imagine it, and it's like you don't even know what it entails. Really, it's weird. I, I just I don't know what it would look like, and I think that's why I really like it. Can we stop with the chat now? <laughs>